You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Living Objectively, Integrating Objectivity into Your Everyday by Tara Smith. Good morning. Welcome to Ocon. Welcome to Miami. And welcome to all of those who I gather are streaming in at the round table. It's good to know you're out there too. Okay. Central to Ayn Rand's philosophy is her account of objectivity. Thus, the name of the philosophy, objectivism. Objectivity is what it's all about. It's what all of Ayn Rand's conclusions about literature, about love, about individual rights, about the virtue of pride, the meaning of money. It's what everything in her view stems from, an objective method. Yet the relationship between the core theory of objectivity, her account of concept formation explained in the epistemology writing, the relationship between that and your happiness is not self-evident. And we sometimes fumble the translation. We fail to follow objectivity correctly or consistently or even to see that it applies to certain ordinary alternatives that we face. Now, big decisions in your life, big decisions may tend to grab your attention and we may readily realize we ought to be objective about this. But you do a lot of things in the course of a day, in the course of a week, right? You're making lots of decisions about all sorts of issues. You're dealing with the credit card that you feel like you shouldn't really pay the full amount this month, but you know, all the ramifications of that. You're dealing with your young son who may be starting to get into trouble at school. You're dealing with that renewed relationship with your brother and is that going better or not? You're dealing with this problem at work, this discovery of a new activity, you know, salsa dancing or whatever it might be. The point is, how you manage all these things adds up. It makes a difference. Non-objective thinking about even these everyday things will take a toll, will lead to not so good decisions. The message of this lecture is don't leave objectivity in the lecture hall with the attitude, oh yeah, that was in that really hard book that Rand wrote. You know, that's for the philosophy students to study. No, don't bring objectivity out just when you're examining an argument. You know, I'm listening to a political program right now and I want to analyze what those idiots on Fox are saying or what those idiots on NPR are saying. As if, well, there are logical activities and that's when I use my objectivity and then there's life. You know, then there's living, okay? No. Our subject is the role of objectivity in everyday living, in how you treat your friends, how you manage your finances, or your fitness, or your vacations, your work, how you parent, how you tend your spiritual needs, how you deal with your emotions, how you talk to yourself about your problems or your weaknesses. Now, some of you may be very good at this already, having woven objectivity into your standard operating procedure on all issues. But some of us haven't. And the aim is to weave objectivity in more seamlessly so that it becomes second nature. Why? Why be objective? Essentially, because you want what objectivity helps you get. Objectivity isn't an end in itself, a royal Randian commandment, thou shalt. It's our means of understanding things. Human beings need to understand things in order to survive, to flourish, 
to prosper. It's selfish. Being objective is in your interest. It leads you to better knowledge and better decisions. Objectivity is our means of discovering the best answer, the best course of action. It helps you to live more happily. It's not penance. It's not a regrettable price you've got to pay, you know, uh, for enjoying yourself. Have a nice summer, but be objective. When you're not objective, you're only hurting yourself because you're impeding your ability to obtain the best understanding of things, right? When you're not objective, you're leaving values on the table. You know that old expression, he's leaving money on the table? You're leaving values on the table. Now again, big decisions, they may tend to get your attention. Okay, I'm really gonna move in with this guy, I better think this through very thoroughly and carefully and deliberately and all that. But again, objectivity in all sorts of issues and on all sorts of scales of issue helps us have the best life we can have. The best relationship, relationships, the strongest self-esteem, the healthiest bodies, the most enjoyable work, the most productive work, the best Tuesdays and Wednesdays, the best days. So that's why we should all care about objectivity and not leave it to the epistemology students. Okay. Now I have to look because it's, it's always hard to see in the way they've got these things. Okay, you're out there, you're still there. Okay, good. Still, well, you know, you want to have an idea of... Good. A um, little more by, by way of preliminary. Just a few words about the scope of this lecture, which is kind of small. This is not a philosophical analysis of objectivity. It's not even an introduction to objectivity. It's not objectivity A to Z, and it's not exactly objectivity for laymen, though there is overlap with one or two of these. Really, it's focused on living objectively, on the ways that objectivity should guide the thinking that you do in the natural course of leading a life. It doesn't offer a blueprint of instruction for every occasion on which you might encounter uh, a chance to be objective in your week, okay? Its modest aim is to direct your attention to opportunities for objectivity that, that you may be missing, and as a consequence, failing to cash in on. I think it's easy to be intimidated by this subject, by this, this topic of objectivity, but you don't have to be an epistemologist to exercise objectivity well. By sensitizing us to occasions where objectivity is available, is the method we should be using, I think we can employ it more often and to more beneficial effect. Because again, the more objective you are, the richer your life. Okay, okay so let's go to part two of the outline, the core meaning of objectivity. Confused notions of objectivity suffuse our environment, and they can easily infect our suppositions about how to be objective. There are many, many misrepresentations of objectivity that are prevalent in the culture. I cite just a few on the handout, I think under misconceptions, that word I think is bolded on the handout. But I don't want to concentrate on those here. Rather, let's concentrate on what objectivity is for a few minutes, okay? What is objectivity? Well, Dr. Peikoff obliges, and this is on the handout, it is volitional adherence to reality by the method of logic. 
So let's probe this just a bit. The reality to adhere to, what's that? Well, in different situations, it can be all sorts of things, right? It might be this acidy stomach that I feel right now, or the, the new moles that I've noticed on my back, or um, my serious fatigue tonight, okay? Look, it'd be good to know these facts of reality to decide whether I should eat the jalapenos since I've already got a somewhat upset stomach, right? Or whether I should call the dermatologist about the moles, or whether I should get behind the wheel if I'm really tired tonight, right? In other situations, the reality might be my worry about this issue, right? Maybe I should pay attention to that reality. Well, what's behind the worry? Is it legitimate? Can I do anything about it? Is it exaggerated? Is it really anxiety, etc.? cetera? Uh, the reality might be my short-temperedness of late. What's that about? They're the facts I should pay attention to. There's the reality of other people sometimes the other friend you're having coffee with and what's going on for her. There's the reality of all those other people who applied for the job that you applied for when you're trying to figure out what are your odds of getting it, right? Right now, for me, there's the reality of you and what you look like and whether you look like, okay, they're looking at their phones already or, you know, the eyes of a glazed franchise donut or whatever's going on. Um, but, you know, I need to be realistic to try to yeah, you're, the re you're a big reality for me right now, okay? And you have been all morning as I've been worried, but that's another story, okay. Um, there's the reality of the material world, right? There's the, no, no, that red wine isn't waterproof, that will stain the tablecloth, or if that cyclist just zooms right by the stop sign, there's a reality that may hit him that may not be, you know, too enjoyable. Objectivity counsels. Whatever the issue, tune in, find out what's going on so that you can know what you're dealing with and then think and act accordingly. Grasp the actuality. That's the idea about this reality, right? Grasp the actuality to be in position to deal with it effectively. To raise a child, you need to learn realities about nutrition, about education. To fix the internet connection, when that's gone bad, you need to first isolate the cause of the problem. So that's a little bit about reality. The other part of Dr. Peikoff's characterization of objectivity, volitional adherence to reality by the method of logic. How are you being logical? What are you doing to adhere to reality? Well, notice, objectivity is about how you know, okay, with nods to the title of Dr. Binswanger's uh, most recent book. Objectivity is about how you know. By what process do you know this? Through what steps do you know whatever it is you think you know, right? How did you reach this conclusion? By observation? By guessing? By reading the polls? By inference? What kind of inference? Inference from authority? Yaron Brooks said that, it must, must be true, right? By logical inference? Some other way? Objectivity means facts first, before your conclusions. First you look, you listen, you gather information about reality, you study the object, and logic, Adherence by logic. Logic keeps your thinking about reality as you move beyond what's immediately present to your awareness 
how you keep that thinking matched up with reality. Objectivity is a deliberate process. I'm sorry, it's a process that's deliberately managed. You monitor yourself and you direct yourself, your mind. It's a discipline, a purposeful technique for reaching an accurate understanding. We need this discipline because the way you think about things doesn't necessarily accurately represent the way things are. That's why you must make a concerted effort to grasp reality by logic. Objectivity is not some uncanny insight, a special power. It's a deliberate method to safeguard against subjectivity and bias. Yet, it's not merely defensive, a guard, a precaution. It's the portal to learning. It's our means of coming to understand something, coming to understand anything. And that, again, is its principal aim, understanding, knowledge. So, if you want to know, be objective. Reality anchored and logical in keeping your thinking tied to that anchor, that reality. Okay. Okay. Where then does objectivity crop up in the everyday? In what realms of our activities do occasions to be objective surface? So we're on part three of the outline now. First, let me mention a few just to kind of warm us up, and then I'll get to the ones that I list on the, on the outline. Okay, one area, household breakdowns. You know when something goes wrong, one of the appliances or something like that at home? I mean, you know this, don't you? Uh, you know, there's a problem with the garbage disposal or the microwave or, God forbid, the coffee machine. Um, and so it begins, right? First, you're trying to figure out, do I really have a problem here? Right? Is this really a problem? Is it recurring every time I use it? Or was it just really that one time? Or maybe it was that we were really using it the same time we were using the dishwasher, and that was it. Hmm, should we call the handyman? Oh, God, he's so damn expensive. Isn't that still under warranty? Where are those bloody warranties? I don't know where the hell I put those. Oh, just get a new one, just get a new one. Oh, but am I throwing money away? Yeah, I'm just throwing money away. Call the handyman. Oh, but then he never shuts up when he comes. It's not a problem. It's, it's not a problem. Anybody recognize that kind of reason? I, anybody else? I gotta see this. Anybody know that? That, that one, uh, thank God I live with a more rational person, because that one is not, I don't solve problems that way. That's not a good one. Um, but, but there is a point there. Uh, there are several factors involved in identifying a problem, let alone diagnosing the cause of the problem and the best remedy, each step of which you can, you can proceed about each step, of, each step of which, either objectively or not objectively, and how you'll end up and how much money you'll end up spending or whatever, and how fast the thing is repaired. The objectivity makes a difference, okay? Very different kind of example, still just these warm-up examples. You're inviting people over for something. Now, it might just be, you know, Friday night casual dinner, but, you know, want to have some friends over. Maybe it's a discussion group. You want to have a discussion of issue X, whatever. One way of doing it, of, who's, of choosing who you're going to invite, is just kind of by rote. You know, well, the usual suspects. These are the friends, you know, this, this is a cluster of friends I often get together with, and it's always these five or six people or whatever, right? 
Another way to do it is to really think about who would be best for this occasion. Even if it's like similar occasions you've had frequently in the past, you know, but tonight you want to talk about X. Or tonight you don't have a particular topic you want to talk about, but you want to have this kind of evening. But you still end up inviting the same people just kind of because, well, that's what you do and that's what's expected. And John will ask you so many questions if you don't ask Mary because Mary's all about this, right? Is usually involved in this group and whatever. The larger point here is simply when you give in to pressures to do things a certain way, not because you think that would really be the best group of people to have over this night, right? But to avoid other bothers which really are bothers, but still are less significant than, no, but I want it to be like this, this Friday night, you know, and I think this group of people would be the best. When you give in to those pressures on that basis, you're not being objective. Now again, I think that's an area where we often don't think about it much in, in terms of objectivity, but you can put together groups for various things in objective or non-objective ways, not logical. Consider one other thing here, uh, another example. Judging time, the, how much time it's going to take you to do something, or judging other people. We sometimes seriously misjudge, which can lead to frustration, anger, failure, disruption of other plans, right? I mean, even though I budgeted a hell of a lot of time to do this lecture, I don't want to tell you how long it actually took me to do the lecture, right? And I do know, well, I know better than I used to know, but you'd think I'd know better, better than, sometimes we misjudge. Now, sometimes that's from a failure to be objective. Sometimes it's not. Obviously, sometimes things take longer or people are different than you expect them to be for reasons you could not have foreseen. It was no failure of objectivity on your part that might explain what went wrong. But sometimes, um, we're not being fully realistic about all that we should consider and the weight we should give different factors when we're thinking about the time it's going to take to do something or another person, for instance. I think there's often a tendency to want to think the best of somebody, and you have a fair amount of evidence to think really well of that somebody, and you tend to ignore the other evidence you have that's not so positive about the person. So again, these are just, I think, recognizable arenas in which we can sometimes fail to be objective and get hurt as a result. Okay. But let me now elaborate further on three occasions for objectivity that I have listed. I th I'm pretty sure I listed these in the handout. Work, values, and self. And largely, I just want to direct your attention to these areas. How you do your work. You could be objective or not about that, right? About how you prioritize the constitutive pieces of your work, the time you devote to this part of the job or that. For instance, to calling clients or to devising a new pitch for clients or to examining the results of past efforts to identify patterns that you might address in the future. Do I put the more palatable parts of my job above the more impactful? Might there be good reason to do that? Do I spend too much time fine-tuning my work product and not enough in the earlier stages generating the big ideas? Maybe I'm better at the one than at the other. Is that a good reason to spend more time on that one? What's good about prioritizing these things? What's bad about prioritizing these? Think too about goals in one's work, the demands you place on yourself. 
Am I setting too low a bar? Am I setting too high a bar? Why do I set the goals that I do? Because everybody else in the field has those goals? What value do I see in making partner at the firm or in earning tenure? How do my goals and work fit with my other bigger goals in life? Do I tend to treat work as inherently good? Do I intrinsicize it? Do I treat it as a way of proving something about myself, proving my fundamental worth? In pursuit of my ends, how disciplined am I? Do I often allow myself to be derailed by being the good guy at the office who anybody can come to for some advice, for some consultation, but I really allow myself to get uh, taken off the tracks that should be my higher priorities? The point is, there are definite ways of following the relevant realities, the relevant facts, to do your work well. A second realm, how do you treat the things you value? Things you think you value, things you say you value. Now, I should clarify, because I've got these three things. I do have them on the hand, don't I? Sorry. Yeah, work, values, and self are all on the outline. Um, Work and self presumably are also values, right? So it's not that I'm now speaking of something that's different in kind, but here I just want to attend to values as such. So again, I asked, how do you treat the things you value? Remember, value entails action. A value is that which one acts to gain or keep. Money is normally a value to people. Is it to you? I mean, you need to ask and know, is it a value to me? How much of a value is it to me and how much of a value should it be to me? Now, we're all in different financial circumstances. Maybe you inherited a lot of money. Maybe you've made a lot of money at a relatively young age or whatever it is. But how much of a value should money be to me? You want to think about, how do I spend my money? Do I kind of consistently blow past the monthly budget for um, eating out? or books, or shoes, right? Just dismissing it as, well, you know, that's just my shoes thing. You know, not, nothing about object, just like, that's my shoes thing, right? Are you too cavalier when you're out about money, when you're out with other people, and you're doing the bill at the end? Because, you know, you don't want to seem cheap, and that's so uncomfortable, right? So now everybody can be uncomfortable all week as you're eating out with these different... Sorry, I know, I just realized that uh, I probably made everybody... I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to lunch right after this, so, you know. Anyway. Um, think about goal, so we're still in values, right? Think about goal setting, we were talking about it a minute ago in regard to work, but just goal setting more broadly. Do you think about how your goals fit together? Which matter most? What's on your bucket list? Why? Do you even believe in bucket lists? Do you make New Year's resolutions based on you know, a bigger picture overview of your life. Some people will tell you, and you know, they'll have worked out devised plans for, well, when I'm 40, and when I'm 50, you know, or, and I'm going to retire at age 55, and, here it's, and this is how it's going to work. And I mean, that can be terrific, right? My point here is not to say, oh, to be objective, thou shalt have a bucket list, or, any, or make New Year's resolution. I don't, I don't believe that at all. I don't, you know... What, what I'm trying to get at, though, is simply this. Are, what I think some of these cultural tropes get at is, are you being thoughtful 
Are you being objective in adopting goals, in spending your life? You know, it is still finite, still. We're working on it. But um, are you being thoughtful? Are you being objective about all of your major goals and the, the lesser ones as well and how those fit in? Are you being objective about the range of them, the variety, the ensemble? Can they really make good music together for your life? Bear in mind, one of these central objectivist values is purpose. Right? Reason, purpose, self-esteem. Specific goals are the way you actualize purpose. So notice, one question for objectivity is why you adopt the goal itself. And we're talking about objectivity of values, right? Why you adopt the goal itself, what you expect it to repay. Another aspect of objectivity involves thinking about how you could actually achieve the goal, what attaining it would actually require of you, which includes you know, requires recognizing all the factors that will influence your success. Objectivity means being realistic. There's reality again, right? Being realistic about how much you control and how much you can't control. About the downsides, the negative aspects of having your goal, It may not be all, you know, peaches and cream, even when you have it. You also have to think about the downsides of the getting of the goal, what you have to go through to attain it, right? You might want that PhD, but the graduate training will be expensive, or it will take a lot of time, or you may be required to take courses, and you're worried about what they're going to do to your mind, to your thinking, right? Or different kind of case, I really want this opportunity to grow the company now, like, This, is, this would be a great boon for the company, which I've really wanted to build, but this is also a really good time to be spending with my little children, and I really wanted to spend those early years with my kids, right? Being objective means facing hard choices sometimes. Being realistic about all the features of the decision that you face in order to make the best decision. A value is a commitment. Now, not all values are equal to you, so the appropriate level of commitment varies with the value. But a real value does demand follow-through in practice. Again, action. Today, I think our casual culture often softens people's relationships to their values. We like our values in fleece and one of those nice, soft, elastic uh, uh, fabrics that we've been wearing, right? Roomy, comfortable, pliable. Friday casual caught on about 20 years ago or something like that, right? Uh, these days, it seems to be life casual, you know? The, I mean, I don't know about you, but I increasingly get that impression. It's like, oh, hold nothing too close, take nothing too seriously, keep your sense of humor. That's, you know, above all, keep your sense of humor. So again, question I asked earlier, how do you treat the things you value? I think to be objective, it can really be helpful to think about that. Sometimes we struggle with gradations of values. What I mean here is this. Early on, as you get to know objectivism, uh, it's fairly elementary advice to say, respect your hierarchy of values. Right? I mean, we all okay, respect your hierarchy of values. But that's easier said than done when you're pressured at the office to donate to the annual campaign for a cause you don't really believe in, or you're pressured by family expectations about how to spend the holidays, 
You might not be deliberately elevating lesser values in your hierarchy, elevating lesser values above higher ones, but if you go along without finding compelling reason to go along, that's what you're doing. It's not being objective. Another way I think we sometimes struggle with the gradations is you're really good at your top two or three values. You're great. It's like my wife, my work, my children. You might really you give them a lot of the attention and energy and time that you believe and you want to give them, right? But underneath those top two or three, it's a mess. It's just a mishigas. You don't know. Like it's it's a scramble. You may be so good to your, to your top two or three or four values that, in effect, you've bulldozed all the others into oblivion. So think about your hierarchy. Think about everything in it. Sometimes it may include things that you think you should value or you'd like to value, but you just don't. Not really. Clear away the imposter values to make room for what you do want to be spending your time on. There's a lot of good stuff to do in life, right? You heard it here first. I mean, there's so much fun stuff. Like isn't there so much stuff you'd like to do? I mean, I always feel like the kid in the candy store. It's like, oh my God, my, you know. But you can't have it all. And objectivity requires learning to say no to some would-be values, things that would be good in certain circumstances, but not in my circumstances, not now. But... Objectivity requires saying no to something so that you can say yes and fully embrace the things that matter most to you. I'm still on the values portion. Values are important. You might have noticed that in life. Um, a word on a particular important category of values, other people, your relationships. Primarily, I'm talking here about friends and family, but not exclusively, okay? Primarily, but not exclusively, but think about friends and family and others. Do you treat people you care about like you care about them? Even mid-level relationships, okay? Not only your closest friends, your dearest, the top three or four maybe, okay? There are a lot of people in my life who are not in like the top three or four or five friends or closest to me. But, but I really like these people. I really respect these people. I value these people. I get a lot out of them. Well, I think correspondingly, I should treat them with a certain respect, a certain consideration, a certain empathy. So think about things like, do you respond to people's messages? Do you thank them for efforts that they have extended? Underneath that, do you appreciate the efforts that they've extended sometimes? And do you try to express that? Or do you utter the words thank you in that perfunctory way that your parents trained you well to say, but it's sort of a performance, you know, it's the thing the parrot says. Same with I'm sorry sometimes. You know, oh, I'm sorry. Are you really sorry? Just want to think about that. To be, are you really sorry? And if so, what are you going to do differently in the future? Or is that just a throwaway line that'll get you absolution from someone? I don't know who, right? Think about being inconsiderate. You know, whether, it's, whether you're the victim here or the perpetrator, perhaps, right? Think about being inconsiderate. Often reflects a lack of objectivity. You do value the person more than your treatment of him would, have implied, would imply, but you just weren't thoughtful in what you were doing. 
and thus you treated him in a way other than what his value to you would have asked of you, right? You just breezed in and talked about yourself and all your problems for, you know, 55 of the 60 minutes you had, and then you gave him, the, you know, the remaining dregs, uh, you know, of the hour or something. Quick question. You know how there are usually a lot of things going on in your mind? How probably all day today, since you first woke up this morning, your mind, you've, you've had stuff going on in your mind. Like you were hearing the news, you were counting your sit-ups, you were um, uh, thinking of that problem from the office that you were reminded of, right? You were rejuggling maybe some of your schedule about today and tomorrow. Chances are the guy sitting next to you has a lot of stuff going on too. Like chances are that person also has a life has concerns and values and problems and projects. And it's helpful sometimes to remind ourselves of that context, to keep that context when dealing with other people. And some contexts demand more of you than the usual. My friend has just gone through a traumatic breakup. Or I know this friend, he's really worried about his job because of all the layoffs at his company lately, and he's you know, worried if, if he's next or whatever. Well, maybe I should reach out a little bit more. Maybe I should suggest we go out to do something to try to get his mind off it or whatever. It is not self-abdicating to recognize the needs of another person. It's not a sacrifice. Even if it's not another person who is your highest value, you're not risking your selfishness by caring about a person and acting like it. Sometimes putting yourself out. Sometimes offering to run the errand or to feed the cat while he's away. That's what valuing is. Okay. I do want to claim we started a little late, honest. Like, I mean, we did start a little bit late, okay? So I think I will go a little bit past 11. I just want to warn you and claim my time. Um, let's look at objectivity now in regard to the self. And here, let me begin with a simple statement of fact. You have a fundamentally different perspective on yourself than you do on anything else. That's not a flaw, that's not a problem, it's natural. You're you, you occupy the inside, so to speak, right? You're in your head, you're in the cockpit. But this can affect your judgment of what's going on outside of you existentially, not only what's going on in your mind. And that presents some unique challenges for being objective about yourself. Objectivity requires introspection, looking within to check on your reasons, your motives. Being honest with yourself about your behavior when you contributed, too, to this conflict with a friend. Yeah, he was wrong to do that, but, you know, I probably shouldn't have done that either. Maybe I'm not blameless here. It means acknowledging what really went on, the reality again, right? And apologizing sometimes. One form of not being objective about oneself comes out in arbitrary exception-making, right? But my child, but I'm really busy. But I can take more time than everybody else was given for this. Look out for those buts. You know, but my child, but me, but I'm busy, right? Look out for those buts to make sure that the exception you're claiming really is justified. It might be, sometimes it is, but it might not be. Be honest to be objective. Check the reality here, right? Egoism doesn't counsel self-absorption that blinds you to other people or that exempts you 
um, uh, from norms that apply to everyone else. You can also fail to be objective in how you treat your emotions by not feeling them or not examining them or allowing them to overrule reasons, repressing negative emotions like sadness or anger because you don't want to feel them. I mean, who would? Or because you don't want to face the ideas beneath the emotions. If I feel that, then that might prod me more to think about why I'm feeling it. And I don't want to face maybe the need to end a friendship, which could be extremely unpleasant and painful. Objectivity counsels accept the reality of what you feel. Feel it. When it raises questions, pursue those questions. Try to answer them. Check the sources of the feeling. Your frustration, intense as it might be, is not reason to decide on action now. Your anger is not reason to fire him. It might come from good reason to fire him. It might not. It might be misplaced. It might be disproportionate to the mistake that he made. Indulging the emotion at the expense of reason, because it feels so decisive, right? that's not proceeding by the relevant reality. It's important to recognize there's no tension between being selfish and being objective. I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I think this is a confusion we sometimes harbor without noticing it. Objectivity tells you to get outside your head. There's a reality independent of your consciousness and you need to find out about it. This is respecting the primacy of existence. Be sensitive to what's going on around you, including other people and their experience. But this doesn't mean give up something that would have been better for you. Make a concession. Being objective doesn't constrain egoism or rein in self-interest, what you can get. Objectivity respects the fact that while your well-being is the proper end of your action, your thoughts aren't the standard of value of what's actually going to be good for you or in your interest. Rational egoism recognizes that the only way to serve your interest is by being objective. Identify reality, think by logic. So, with emotions, feel them. Check on their roots, the validity of the underlying judgments, and act on reason. Okay, I'm going to skip a tiny bit. Um, I'll tell you what it's about if you want to pursue it in the question period, but even if I included it here, I was only going to say a tiny bit about it. Objectivity is more complicated when you're in on group decisions you know, when you're in a team, on a, a team like a team at work, as well as I suppose an athletic team, but um, you're on a committee, um, when you're making decisions that, that include other people or with other people um, in communication, there are a few contexts in which it's not you as solo decision maker and that really complicates. Um, I don't have a, a great deal to say about that, but if you want to talk about it a little bit, we can in Q&A, but I'll, let me skip the little bit I had um, for now. Excuse me. <coughs> okay. Identifying a problem is often half the battle for solving it. So next, in part four, I'd like to recount some of the common ways we fail to be objective, ways we fail, why we fail, 
to shed light on how to strengthen our deployment of objectivity in the everyday, okay? Because ultimately what we do want is some lessons to draw, some practical takeaways. So on ways that we sometimes fail to be objective. One way is by compartmentalizing. Conscientiously using objectivity in some areas, but not others. On how I spend my money, but not how I spend my time. On fitness, but not relationships. With friends, not with family. With family, the wheels come off. It's just a mess, whatever gets you through, right? I, I mean, I'm not, I don't literally, it, it depends on the family members. But um, also with compartmentalizing, sometimes not considering how the goals, the different ends and values fit together. How the values in one sphere are compatible or whether they're compatible with your, your goals and values in another. You're not noticing or you're, compartmentalizing so much that you're not noticing that how your poor approach to time does have an impact on your relationships or something like that. We sometimes have blind spots about whole regions that objectivity governs. Kidding ourselves that, well, objectivity doesn't apply here, right? It's not so much that you consciously think, is objectivity applicable and, and you answer no, rather we fall into routines without its occurring to us that objectivity might have something to say here about, for instance, how I spend my free time. I just think of that, well, that's my free time. So as if it's objectivity free, as well as well free from the office's demands or something like that, right? We succumb sometimes to unconscious subjectivism, going by my ways simply because they are my ways. They're familiar, they're comfortable. We allow the hard stone of habit to supplant objective reasoning, repeating the entrenched ways of doing things, you know, our own entrenched ways of doing things, thinking about certain issues, of even what I consider thinking about or rethinking about, basically because, well, that's the way I've been doing it ever since I started this job or moved into this house or whatever it might be. These could be small daily habits about when you eat or what you eat, or who you see on weekends, or um, how you prepare a class. You allow grooved patterns of doing things to govern whole swaths of your life. Now, habits can be very helpful, and we actually, we talk about this a fair amount in objectivism, automatizing certain things can be constructive, it saves time, it can save mental labor, but you can also overdo reliance on the automatized, right? And to be objective, objectivity isn't rote. It can't be thoughtless. It requires attention. A related way we sometimes are not objective, we fail to update. We rely on good practices of the past as still good when they no longer are, when conditions have changed in ways that alter their efficacy. I think, for instance, about, in my in my world, in my experience, students today. Now, determining how to update can be tricky. I don't want to pander to bad, you know, student tendencies today, perhaps, or to student weaknesses, right? Let's say they have shorter attention stands. I don't want to pander to that, but I also don't want to ignore current realities, reality, 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 um, that impact, that will, that will impact the efficacy of my approach as a teacher, right? Different kind of example about the need to update sometimes. 
Maybe you have changed in certain ways, such that the activities you used to engage in or the way you used to do certain things no longer make sense for you. Yeah, it was great to ski all the time until the third knee surgery, and maybe now I ought to find something else that's a little better for the knees or whatever it might be, right? Maybe it was wonderful to travel so lavishly until the recent really serious financial hits, and maybe it should be a little shorter vacation or a little lesser accommodation, and we won't all be at the Intercontinental or wherever we might be. Um, you've got to be objective. Beware jumping to conclusions prematurely based on past experience. Conclusions that might have fit similar circumstances but that don't suit this circumstance now. Don't let the past or don't let your past judgments blind you to current realities. Don't see what you expect to see rather than what's actually before you. Another trap that I think it's easy to fall into, settling for partial objectivity or halfway, initiated objectivity in thinking about some issue without the full follow-through. For instance, you start an objective procedure for thinking about some question, and you diligently take the first two steps or three or four of a methodical, I'm being good and objective about this hard decision, and then it's like, okay, that's it, that's fine, good, good enough abruptly calling it to a halt. You sweep past further reasoning and you hastily draw your conclusion. No, it's not just going through the first few uh, lookalikes of objectivity. Objectivity demands digging for the reality start to finish. Start to logical finish, not to convenient finish or as long as you feel like it. Yet another way we sometimes stray from objectivity we rationalize to the preferred conclusion. We practice so-called motivated reasoning. We manufacture reasons to do something, or we distort the reasons that are relevant, inflating the significance of some, minimizing the importance of others. In a campaign to make my psyche safe for doing what I want to do, rather than the objective thing to do. For example, the inner monologue like this, oh, I can't go to that funeral. And let's suppose it's your best friend's mother, and this really is a very close and dear friend, and it was a really close relationship she had with the mother, so it's the kind of situation where this is a big deal. This is a really serious loss, and this person, your friend, is a really serious good friend to you, okay? But in the mind, it, I can't go to that funeral. I can't take the time to fly to Seattle, and it's so expensive. I've got to stay here, too, and then you fill in the blank, you know, to, take care of the kids, or to get ready for our vacation next week, or to get those reports finished uh, before annual review, or to get that article in for tenure, before tenure review. I, I just can't do it. Really. Check your premises. Check your, I can. I've got to. Maybe they're valid, honest. I mean, I am, this is, again, this is not a, thou must go to every funeral or something. like. There are, I mean, there are circumstances, right? But my point is, but you've got to be honest in thinking these through if you're going to be objective, right? Sometimes there are good reasons for not going. Sometimes the reasons you're giving yourself are really just the exhaust of evasion. The cover story to get past the doubts that you're also sensing but would rather not confront. Being objective means being honest with yourself, doing more thinking to make sure. 
Beware, in a related vein, beware relying on half-truths. It's too expensive. I'm too busy. I'm tired. Don't let a half-truth short-circuit your finding out the whole truth on some issue. Sometimes there's more to the story that's relevant. Okay? Also, look out for what I'll call defensive reasoning, which is another form, really, of motivated reasoning. Sometimes we subconsciously recoil from the prospect of other people's negative judgments. And we let that exert undue influence on our thinking, contorting, it to fit, contorting our thinking to fit with what others approve of. In effect, we're, we think from a defensive crouch, where we actually have two goals, twin goals for our thinking, right? Well, I'm thinking, I want to try to figure out the reality here, but also subconsciously, I don't want to come to some conclusion that'll make them not like me or not agree with me or not respect me. When you've got those twin sorts of goals, that's not a recipe for objective thinking. So you really want to try to investigate your motivations. Make sure the public reasons or the reasons you're telling yourself are the basis for your views are the actual reasons that you think the things you do. Another form of non-objectivity that I think we sometimes succumb to is thinking by atmosphere. Drawing conclusions according to the emotional tone of the context of a conversation, for instance. For example, yeah, Mark was definitely right about what he was saying about DeSantis at the party the other night. That was such a nice party. And then you, you know, start thinking about how wonderful the crab cakes were or whatever and all that. But in effect, you're concluding, yeah, Mark was right about that because it was such a nice party. Now, when I say that, that may sound ridiculous. I don't know. I would think that, like, like that's ridiculous, right? But sometimes we allow the warm association to supply the basis for a particular conclusion. Again, not consciously. We're not stupid. I mean, we might be weird, as, as Tal called us at the beginning, but, you know, we're, we're not stupid. So it sounds ridiculous, but uh, I think implicitly we sometimes slide from the warm aura of a conversation or an event to the conclusion, yeah, that's right, that's the right position, as if that warm atmosphere is part of the evidential support for a position, right? Call it atmospheric reasoning, allowing the emotional spillover to influence our assessment of an argument. Now, the negative occurs too, right? That meeting was so poorly run. His arguments on immigration were really stupid. Maybe his arguments on immigration were really stupid, but it's not because of how well the meeting was or wasn't run, okay? And everybody this week, right? Nothing said at Ocon is true because they're such nice people or I had such a good time, right? Bear that in mind, right? Whatever's true has to stand up on some other grounds, okay? But I can't tell, are you getting this one or is this one just not working? It's like, I can't tell, it's not working, okay. All right, on, I said I'd talk about ways we fail, why we fail, just one thought on why we fail. For people who strive to be objective, I think our failures typically result from passivity, drift more than from conscious rejection of objective methods. Not being objective is often a sin of omission, as the Catholics would say, rather than commission, right? 
It's not so much deliberate defiance of what we think we should do, but receding to cruise control in a mindless way. A lot of failures to be objective simply stem from not noticing. Often a failure comes from carelessness, thoughtlessness. Think about the friend who hurts your feelings. Often, maybe usually, he doesn't mean to, he doesn't even realize that he is. But he's not treating you as you deserve, objectively as you deserve from him. He wasn't sufficiently attentive to your situation. He didn't mean to hurt you, he simply didn't pay enough attention. He was thoughtless about your end of things or where you are right now, and about the value that he does place on you. He took you for granted. Sometimes for reasons of convenience, he's moving fast in his life. He's really busy, he's a busy guy, right? and that may be true. It's easier, it's quicker for him to just get on with things if he doesn't pause to pay attention and make the minimal effort that he should. But he did hurt your feelings by doing that. So the lesson here is simply, objectivity is thoughtful. And thought takes time. It takes a moment, sometimes only a moment. But break for your values, you know, break, B-R-A-K-E, as they say on some bumpers, you know, break for, break for your values to check and make sure you're treating them as values. And a few lessons for being objective. So we're still in, in four on the outline. I think, I hope, practical takeaways are fairly apparent from everything that I've been saying, and I've noted some of them as we've gone along. Some are familiar and useful for objectivity on any occasion, not just in everyday living, but even when you are analyzing philosophical arguments. Um, I mean, we're, we're all familiar with check your premises. You know, good practice in order to be objective. Check your premises, all the relevant premises, and check how you're applying your premises to the case at hand. Check the context. Am I neglecting some salient aspects of context? Notice, context is another word for reality. Or at least, it points you particularly to this immediate reality, this situation. So check your context. Check your concepts. Are they valid? What do you mean by a given term compared to the way it's used in, in most popular discussion around you? When you inadvertently credit confused notions of, let's say, equity or police brutality or who is overrepresented in the high school, you're setting your thinking on tracks that lead away from the relevant realities when you're using, again, misguided conceptions of these. So again, good instruction, check your concepts, how you're using the concepts, right? But beyond those, which again, I think are familiar and useful for being objective in any sphere, let me add a few more specific pieces of advice for objectivity in the everyday. I think I've got three things here. One, don't believe everything you think. I believe that, I think it's Richard Feynman, I've heard that claim attributed to some other people. Uh, I think Richard Feynman might have been, but, but the point is, don't believe everything you think, don't assume you're right. Sometimes you might think, well, you know, I'm an objectivist, and we've got the right answers about issue X or Y. Yeah. As if that's the reason for the view, you know, the proof of the view about immigration or about price controls or whatever, is objectivists know. Well, actually being objective means you confront, how do you know? How do you know? 
And how do you know that objectivism has the correct answer on this issue? Objective thinking is farm to table. You know the provenance of your belief from soil and seeds up. You know its validation from the ground up. Remember, that's what objectivity revolves around, how you know what you know, and how you can learn and come to know things you don't know. Okay, second piece of advice. We make great strides toward being objective when we slow down and pay attention. Be more conscious of how you're proceeding, more intentional. Attend to your procedures. Are you taking all the steps? Are you looking from all the angles that you should on this issue? Are you being methodical, systematic, thoroughly logical? Now, slow down is not sexy advice. And it's not what people want to hear in a culture that's on speed, right? I mean, our thinking these days is, well, but if I listen to a lecture later at three times the speed, by the time I finish, it'll be the day before yesterday. That's a win. <laughs> and then maybe you could do all those things. You know, I was saying there's so much good stuff in life you want to do. Maybe if you listen to me on, at three, you can get in a few more of those things. Anyway. Um, Thinking fast is not conducive to the deliberate monitoring that objectivity requires. Don't charge ahead to a conclusion when you're not in a logical position to draw one. Respect what you don't know on an issue that's crucial to reaching a rational conclusion about that issue. There's no virtue in forcing an unwarranted conclusion prematurely. I think this arises sometimes in the ways that objectivists apply the virtue of justice. Ankar Gatte, I think we'll be talking about this a little bit tomorrow. You don't have to have a stand on every issue now. To judge objectively is not to judge on an artificial timetable in concert with what the rest of the crowd has judged or as you find most comfortable. You know, I want my verdict now, like an impatient two-year-old banging the fork for his dinner. Objectivity means you're going to have to slow down sometimes. And third, final piece of advice. As you slow down to pay fuller attention, whatever the issue you're dealing with, I think it can be helpful to pose a simple, single-word question. Really? Is that really so? How do I know it's so? By what means? On what grounds? That question, really, that encapsulates what objectivity is all about. Getting at reality. Okay, so I will wrap, but let's take a breath or two, and then, and then a quick wrap. Philosophy should make life easier. Well, let me put that a little bit more precisely. Understanding philosophical truths, if they are truths of philosophical breadth and fundamentality, understanding philosophical truths, this should make your life easier and better. The theme of this conference is taking objectivism seriously, living objectivism. Why? Why take objectivism seriously? Why care about objectivity? This is where we started the discussion today, right? 
Because objectivism is the philosophy that you can build a life on, a human life. It's the philosophy you can build your happiness on. And it gives you the key method to use again and again in endless encounters to do that. Objectivity. Use it and make the most of your life. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we now have time for questions, and we may be getting a few questions from the people who have joined us virtually as well. So, uh, yes. Have you seen the Korean TV series Itaewon Class? And if you have seen it, could you evaluate it with respect to your topic? Unfortunately, I have not seen it. Sorry, thanks. Uh, is there just the one row of, uh... yeah, I get it, all right. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Tara, that was wonderful. Um, question is, I want more. That isn't a question, but what is the part you left out? I'd love you to so, put that in. Yeah, I, I really think one could do a whole separate lecture and the subject needs a lot more careful thinking about how to be objective when it's not simply up to you. You're not the solo decision maker. So again, I'm thinking of at least a few different contexts, such as you have to collaborate with some other people and you have to come up with a joint decision for this team, this committee, that sort of thing. So that's one kind of situation. Um, another is you're trying to communicate to other people, right? It's not just you figure, you solve this math problem or you figure out this epistemology question, but okay, you're a teacher or maybe you're not a teacher, you're trying to, ex you're a, a physician, you're a therapist, you're trying to explain something to clients, to patients, you're a salesman. I mean, there are many, many situations in which we need to communicate. Well, to communicate, so, I, again, let me first, okay, so that's a, a, another kind of, you're, trying to be objective with or in the context of dealing with other people. A third context that I had in mind was you're making rules or policies that will govern a lot of other people. And the, it's one thing if I'm running a, a three-man company. It's another if it's 300 people or you know 3,000 people. And when you're making policies or when you're making laws, for instance, a government that are gonna, that need to govern in certain ways, large groups, I think some different factors enter into what's required to be objective or how, what that's going to look like than in the normal solo case. So I think all of these could use some serious attention. I'll give you, just to say a little bit more though about one of them, and it's one that because of what I do as a teacher and a writer, I, I'm concerned with, but how, you know, is this getting across? So. Objective communication, again, not just for teachers, for anybody, when you've got to communicate something, you're in sales, you're in recruiting, you're explaining things to clients of different sorts. You've got to get, I mean, one important reality when you're communicating, to communicate objectively is, it's a two minds operation, or it might be a many minds operation, it's not just about me and my thinking and my understanding. So for example, a lecture, isn't simply a soliloquy that other people are allowed to watch. Do you know what I mean? But that's important, right? Even if the soliloquy is 
bloody brilliant. This guy has this logically figured out. He's got complete mastery of the issue. And you look at that and all the, like, in terms of, you know, the guts of it and what's in there, it's, it's logically impeccable. That doesn't make it a good lecture or a good paper, right? Because to be, you know, qua communication, it's got to achieve the ends of communication. So again, other, that's just to say other factors enter in, but truly I think a lot more thinking needs to be done. And I'm like, I haven't done it yet because it's hard when well, you're negotiating with other people and you, you have to reach something that the majority of us will agree on and you don't want to compromise certain things, but it's not a solo decision and you've got to take into account more factor. You have less control in, in a group situation. Um, you have less control and there are more and more complicated factors that you've got to bring, that become part of the reality you need to pay attention to. So that's a little bit of, yeah. Take another one here. Hi. Hi. In terms of applying, um, the, the topic of applying objectivity in the wild. I'm sorry. Uh, in terms of... Uh, apply, oh, sorry. Um, applying objectivity in the wild, as you're talking about, in real life, in a culture... I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not here. I don't know if it's kind of where I am that might be making I can it just hard. Talk to you this way. Um, in terms of applying objectivity in the wild in a culture that doesn't facilitate that, how would you address charges of overthinking? Of overthinking? <laughs> um, that's a good interesting question. Yeah, because I mean we don't have a culture that reveres, to say to put it mildly, that reveres reason. Well you Somebody accuses you of overthinking, like really ask them just like, well, what do you mean? Why am I overthinking? How am I overthinking? Look, there is such a thing as overthinking. And there are times when, you know, maybe some of us have been guilty of overthinking certain things. But on any given occasion, what makes you think you're overthinking it now? And pay attention to what those specifics are or aren't. But there's some, oh, that's overthinking. And sometimes people are very ready to say that like, because they're just rather no thinking about it or no real thinking, but rather emoting and feeling and, and so on. Um, so the way to respond is to tell me what you mean. Like, tell me specifically what are you referring to? And I mean, there may, I just, just give me a moment to think. I'm always telling myself, like, I should think more during Q&A, and then I don't do it, so let me try. Um, I'm overthinking? Oh, sorry. Um, so maybe, see, now you've discouraged me from ever thinking again during a Q&A, and that's not good. Um, but that's another issue. Uh, I guess I'll leave it at that for now, because they're kind of pressuring me, but you see, I don't want them to not like me, so I better, yeah. Professor, I have a question online from Ian, and it's related to this. He asks, well, we shouldn't rush our decisions and judgments, but do you have any thoughts on the other side of this, which is avoiding analysis paralysis? There are dangers in both directions. I mean, there's, there, again, there's no, like, here's the template, or, you know, dinner decisions, 10 minutes job decisions, 10 hour, you know, that you can say what's too much. You've got, 
And here I think, too, one's values and hierarchy and priorities have to come into play. Yes, there, you can overthink an issue. You can spend too much time analyzing, or oh, I want to talk to 28 people on this. Um, you can do that to the extent that now you're just avoiding making the judgment, right? Obviously, you have to call the question sometimes. You have to judge for your, you have to judge objectively how much time is it worth uh, my spending on this decision. And I mean, we do this, you know, we do this on a regular basis about certain things. Believe me, the other day, uh, the third consecutive, I was trying to get here to Miami from wherever I was. I was in New Jersey for a few days and a few longer, more days than I expected. Believe me, by the third day, when the, the flight was canceled, I just wanted to get back to Texas at that point. I didn't want to come here but, uh, at that point. But I immediately was like, okay, you're very emotional, you're very angry, you're very frustrated right now. If you get on the phone with United now, you may not make what you really think would be the best decision about doing this. But, you, but I mean, I was getting close to giving up, right? And I mean, there, it, it, it's just worth so much to get to an oak, you know, like so much time and aggravation and so on, but you've got to be making those calculations for yourself all the time. Now, again, when I say you've got to make it for yourself, it doesn't mean you just make it however you like, but you've got to think about the relative value of certain things. Let me just give one other example. When judging another person, um, or when judging in a circumstance of some ignorance where there's good, like you don't know everything you need to know to reach a rational conclusion about something. It can be frustrating to not yet be in the position to make the judgment because I'd really rather have that issue done and off my plate and off my mind, right? But again, you've got to pay attention to what you know, what you don't know, what you need to know to make a rational decision, how important it is to you to make a rational decision about this issue, given the value of it, there's no shortcut around this. So there's, yes, there's a danger. You, you can engage in analysis by, or paralysis by overanalysis or something like that. You can also rush decisions. You've got to be honest. You've got to slow down at least to be honest with yourself about the relative value of the decisions you're making and what you may still need to learn and what thinking you may still need to do about what you know in order to reach the best decision that you can. Hi, uh, my question has to do with Dr. Kenner's question earlier. I'm trying to find out about how do you seek objectivity when there is incompatibility. For instance, two objectivist students here, they meet, they get along, um, they date, they want to live a life together. They both want to move to Miami. They both want to live in the beautiful condos we have out here. But one wants first floor facing the bay. The other one wants the 17th floor facing the city. One wants a Honda, one wants a Toyota. One wants four children, one wants no children. There's just total incompatibility, but both reach these values very objectively. How do you deal with that? You send them to Dr. Kenner because she's the psychotherapist, see? Thank you. Um, we're not letting you retire yet, Ellen. Um, well, no, I mean, it's, we have these things. Okay, so thank you. Um, it sounds like, I mean, they've got to think about what they value most. I mean, how important is the river view or whatever it is, you know, or the Honda versus this kind of car to 
what I'm getting out of living with this, per I mean, so some of the kinds of values, now, you know, depending on the kinds of examples you give, there are some things that are really important to a person that might reasonably be really important to a person. But there's also, you know, if you think you've found the love of your life, that presumably is pretty damn important to you too. So you've got to think about the relative value of these things, but there are, incom well, incompatibility also is a strong term. There are differences of opinion, there are differences of taste, there are differences of preference. You know, one person likes this kind of vacation. Well, that's going to be a recurring issue if you take an annual vacation and the, the other partner likes a different type. But one thing I think that the, the two people need to think about individually and talk about is what's an incompatibility between, like, th you know, this is just incompatible. This is not going to work. You know, we have some deep disagreement on this as opposed to, yeah, I'm really inclined this way on this thing, but you're really inclined this way, but it's not so horrible for me when I, I mean, you just kind of think about something. But I don't really have anything fabulous to say on that. But, you know, be honest about them and talk about them and think about them in light of the relative value of we have a question from the online audience. If living objectively requires constant monitoring, how does one get better at maintaining a constant practices of monitoring rather than drifting in and out of focus? It's hard to know exactly how to put this, but you, you just start thinking about it more often. You, you try, you make the effort. Um, and I don't at all mean that in a, uh, to be fresh or sarcastic. Like, first you notice, I need to notice more. I need to be more thought, but you remind yourself of that regularly. Like, mm, no, slow down here. Slow down here, like think about that. Now again, the, the idea isn't, you know, everything, every conversation should be punctuated by frequent pauses or something, but on a daily basis, you can be reminding yourself and reminding yourself more through the day of, hmm, or even after the fact, ooh, did I really think about that objectively or not? I mean, if you think about self-improvement on, on any particular thing, a lot of it, people find, comes from initially just noticing more. You know, if you're trying to change some daily habits about what you eat or how often you eat or how mindlessly you eat, for instance, or whatever it might be, one really important first step is usually noticing, paying attention. So you can do that with, so, oh, I was drifting again there. Oh, I was drifting again there. Oh, I didn't even hear the end of her answer because I was drifting again there. So, but you've like, you can, through practice, train your mind, train your thinking to be better. Um, yeah, let me leave it at that so that we might have time for another question or two. Yeah. There are music and movies that I first enjoy with friends, and I think they're great, and then it takes me years to realize, oh, that song, I don't really agree with it, or that movie had really disgusting values. Any advice on avoiding atmospheric reasoning when consuming art, when enjoying art? Do I have any advice on that you're asking yeah. about? Oh, that's really interesting. Because I certainly have had the same experience sometimes. Oh, my initial reaction to, to a work of art is different than my later reaction or my um, more considered reaction. Although sometimes, I suppose, what you're reacting, there can be different aspects of what you're reacting to that 
I'm not sure how to, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here, but it's something like, it's not always a mistake to have liked what you liked or, you know, and also the liking is different from, well, you know, if I, if I give this a careful philosophical analysis, I can see, you know, A, B, and C are wrong with the imp implications of that novel or something. Um, but, sorry, so the question is, do I have advice on... On, on atmospheric reasoning in that situation. So you like something because you were in a great group of people who went to see that movie or your friends like that song. Well, okay, but that's very, like, I can know that my friends like something and be with them and love them and want to have a good time, but I didn't like it. I mean, I'm still going to have my reaction, my authentic reaction to whatever it is we're experiencing. That's different, you know, like, I want to like it because my friends like it. That can't make me like it. Um, and that shouldn't make me not pay attention to what it is that I did like or didn't like about it. And you want to notice, oh, I'm just sort of going along there because I want to be in with the friends or something. Um, hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, Professor, good talk. Uh, so you briefly mentioned about the learning to say no. Uh, about learning to say no. Learning. So when to say no. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. So I oftentimes find myself at work situations where my, I'm at conflicts with objectively, want, objectively and logically wanting to say no. But mind plays weird games where you are in constant hunger for growth. And you think, oh, if I say no to this, will I get a similar opportunity in the past? Am I waiting for something? So in that case, how does one? I don't think there's a general answer to that question, right? Because there are times you should say no. And there are times you shouldn't. Or there are times when, hey, Nine times out of 10, I should say no here. I gotta think more before I say no this time. And maybe it won't be a no, maybe I should say it, right? There are certain occasions where you should do the exception. You know, it's an exceptional opportunity or it is truly a once in a life, you know, it's like this may not come again for 22 years, right? But all you can do is try, is stop yourself and go slowly enough to be thoughtful, thorough honest with yourself. You know, sometimes give yourself a little more, t I mean, and a lot, you know, in terms of being objective in every day, a lot of people have certain practices that they engage in to try to get themselves to be more objective, little policies that they might adopt, like never make a decision when angry or, you know, sleep on any, you know, decisions of a certain magnitude, you know, sleep on it. And just as in offices and in different kinds of procedures, there are checklists and standard op. So, you know, especially the bigger decisions, you wanna give yourself time to get past some of the immediate emotions, you know, pro and con, but there's no formula I can give you, but you just, it's like, yeah, there are, life's messy in a certain sense, but objectivity helps you like get through it, but, but it does take time and attention and being thorough, as thorough as you can. Being objective doesn't mean you'll never make a mistake. Being objective doesn't mean you'll never make a mistake or, oh, no, damn, you know, in retrospect, uh, that didn't work out. It may well have been the right thing even to do at the time, but it doesn't mean it's going to work out necessarily. And that's, yeah. Okay, thanks. Good. Professor, we have a question from online. Uh, okay, I think this online. is the last one given the time. Yeah. 
Philippa asks about bias. She asks, how do you identify your biases given that they're often subconscious and even when you try to look for them, it can be difficult? Um, so bias, that's a... I guess I'd want to know in part, I think it was a she that you referred to, what she means by bias. Because I think that's one of these concepts that's often misapplied when we're thinking about objectivity. Not always misapplied, but, but often misapplied. Um, I, I, I feel like I must sound like a broken record in saying, you gotta be honest with yourself. Um, to look for, well now you're just kidding yourself, Tara, or yeah, you've really been avoiding thinking about this issue, you know, or this aspect of some issue, some question, and maybe the reason is because you're kind of biased toward, you know, in a positive way toward these objectivists or toward that guy because you like him so much or whatever. Be honest with yourself to try to look for the blind spots, the biases that you may be indulging, but, you know, much of the value of Ayn Rand's understanding of objectivity is there are no inbuilt biases. There is no, we are not determined to be non-objective. Yes, you're in your own head. Yes, you have the life that you have. Nobody else can have had the same past history, background that you had. Being objective is about how do I correct for potential bias or potential indulgence of partial perspective that I might fall into, but for the fact that I can check through logic, do these conclusions, do these thoughts make sense in light of the reality that I observe? If you adhere logically to, you know, the systematic discipline of objectivity, that's how you get beyond bias. So I guess I'll leave it at that. Okay. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.